He goes, in 11 years, it'll be 1985. Think about that. And, about that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Recotopia, a happy home for recommended movies, shows, and music from two people you can definitely trust. Trustability varies by region, no guarantee is implied. Now, here are your hosts, Chris Atkinson and Jeremy Scott. You say you don't want to tell me how to live my life. So what do you think you've been doing? You tell me what rights I've got or haven't got and what I owe to you for what you've done for me? Let me tell you something. I owe you nothing. Hello, everybody. This is Recotopia, episode 97. The uh, big recommend today is going to be Guess Who's Coming to Dinner uh happy new year to everybody it's 2024 you guys remember when you were a, a child in the 80s and you're like man the year 2000 is a really futuristic year where we're gonna have like flying cars and everything it's gonna be so crazy it's gonna be like minority report out there and now it's 2024 and everything's exactly the same as it was <laughs> worst <laughs> um uh with us today we have aaron dicer hi arenos and we have jeremy scott what's up yeah that's right um so does anybody have any small recommends it's no big deal it's so small and light it's small it's tiny it's petite it's wee Oh, indeed I do. Uh, I'm going to kick us off by talking a little bit about Godzilla Minus One. Oh, Ooh, I saw this on the weekend. Son of bitches. You both seen this? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Son of bitches. Yeah. Uh, I, I will join the chorus of those saying that this is worth your time uh, to check out. I have never been like a huge Godzilla fan in, in my first real experience with Godzilla was the Broderick one. So like, I, you know, that's, that was my introduce, uh, introduction to really the, like, I knew of the character, but I just never really seen any of the old man in suit movies or anything like that. Um, and then have become a little more familiar over time. And then when they redid kind of the, the monster universe and did that Godzilla movie, I came a little more interested. This is my favorite by far. Like I have never seen a Godzilla movie I loved as much as this one. Uh, and I think the reason is pretty simple. Uh, it is a movie that understands that the monster and the destruction that the monster causes is a, a it is a, a canvas upon which the human stories are told. And this movie gets that more than any of the, you know, uh, big monster movies we've seen recently get that and understand that. Uh, the monster isn't the villain. The monster is just kind of the, the, the motivating factor of, you know, the stories and the relationships and what we're experiencing. Uh, I think this movie is beautiful. I think it's meaningful. I think, you know, the destruction parts are captivating and interesting and well done. But, you know, this is about the human characters and what they're going through. And that stuff's really, really good here. So, yeah, I really, really dug uh, Godzilla Minus One. It also has, like, a, a tiny budget, right? Like... For the visuals, mm -hmm. like, I think I read that it just has a tiny budget. Like, if this was a Hollywood production, it would be a $250 million film. Um, but they made it stretch. They made it work. And that's kind of a theme this year, right? Because that um, Gareth Edwards movie, The Creator, um, mm. also had a really small budget, but really high visuals. Anyway, uh, yeah. I'm very excited for Godzilla Minus One. Um, 
Yeah, I've never been a big Godzilla fan either, but everything I read about this sounds amazing. It's probably my favorite Godzilla scene too, and it, it reminded me of the original, the very first one that came out because it had other things in mind uh, even then um because the 1954 version of it is is all about someone who has created a weapon that can kill godzilla but he is torn about using it because he doesn't want governments getting a hold of that weapon and it's very conscious obviously of the atomic bomb and everything Mm -hmm. uh, because it's it's only a few years after it was dropped so uh, yeah i really really enjoyed it too second that small recommend what about Mm -hmm. you I uh, watched a little Netflix original film about a week, a week and a half ago called Leave the World Behind with some yes. stars. Mm. Uh, Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali, Ethan Hawke, um, sneaky Kevin Bacon cameo, um, <laughs> like movie stealing Kevin Bacon cameo. Uh, but the first thing I want to tell you about this movie is that it is actively being review bombed by people who hate Barack Obama. Mm. Um they will openly tell you this if you look through some of the Google reviews, which are copy-pasted. I read hundreds this morning, and they all said the same thing. Mm-hmm. The Obama should stick to politics, etc. Um, so if you, if you rely I didn't even on... Think, I didn't even think Barack's performance was that bad in this movie. Ha, ha, ha. He's an executive <laughs> producer, by the way, folks. Um, and he and his wife have an overall uh, production deal with Netflix. This is part of that. Um, Anyway, if you look at Rotten Tomatoes, same thing. So don't trust the user reviews on this particular movie. There are 10,000 on Google. I looked at Saltburn. It barely has 1,000. So uh, Leave the World Behind is being review bombed. I'm here to tell you it's pretty awesome. Um, It's pretty interesting. Uh, One of the things that I like most about it is the vagueness of the apocalyptic event that's going on around them. Um, There is an interpretation of the film, I think, that suggests they do tell you what's happening, but they don't really. Like, you could argue that the apocalyptic event is nuclear, is alien, is kaiju. Uh, That's not really what this movie's interested in. This movie's interested in uh, human relationships, uh, particularly new ones, uh, and how they form in uh, circumstances that are kind of beyond our control and dire. so this is more of a think piece. It's an actor's showcase. Uh, and I was just really riveted from beginning to end. I, this is another one of these movies that people are online, like, ending of this movie explained. And I'm like, what's the ending really all that big? <laughs> <laughs> it was. Um, but while the movie does spare plenty of details, I think, you know, the plot, what happens is pretty straightforward and, and really interesting. I'm not seeing anything quite like this. So there you go. I, uh, I, I love this movie. It's growing on me the more I think about it. Um, Sam Esmail, uh, who you may know better as the creator of Mr. Robot, which was a huge thing, mm-hmm. um, has you know gone on to, to do some other shows, uh, produce some stuff, and he's directing this. And uh, it is a movie that at first I thought was about the apocalypse, but it's actually about technology. This movie is about how we relate to entertainment technology. And there is scene after scene in this movie that asks us to ask the question, is entertainment through technology 
separating us from each other or bringing us together? Or is it doing both? Is it a healing thing in our life that gives us space to, you know, recuperate and, you know, turn off a little bit? Or is it numbing us to the reality of what's going on around us? It asks mm -hmm. those questions and lets us go, you know what, it's that's a nuanced answer. And I love the way this movie plays in those areas. Uh, I think the movie starts if I if I'm remembering correctly, on a pan through, you know, it starts with, you know, a drone shot, and then it pans through the vehicle to all the participants in the vehicle and the different ways they're interacting with entertainment technology, totally separate from each other, having these completely separate experiences. And then the movie just goes from there and just really layers that theme in to the very ending, which is, again, about what is, you know, technology mean to us and entertainment mean to us through technology. So, mm. um, yeah, I found a lot to love about this, even beyond the what I thought were great performances in the mystery. Had a, had a really, like, uh, you know, uh, old school M. Night feel to it. Like, this this could have been, like, uh, you know, a, an M. Night movie and that it's only interested in giving you the information you need at that moment to understand what the movie wants you to understand. Uh, so, yeah, I, I thought this was really, really well done. Aaron just hijacked my small recommend, everybody, to uh, <laughs> recommend even stronger than I did. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. um, mine is American Fiction, uh, the uh, the uh, movie where Jeffrey Wright plays an author who he writes really good fiction. And as, as a uh, statement on uh, the world at large uh, doesn't sell very well. I've actually heard this from songwriters before around here where they write stuff that they think is awesome, but it doesn't sell. So they have to quote, dumb it down in order to uh, get it sold. Um, so uh, he writes these books that don't sell and he sees that there's this other author uh, played by Issa Rae who r is writing so-called black fiction, but has this perspective that is like, you know, is got street language in it and it's like purposefully misspelled words and things like that in it. And when he hears her talk, uh, uh, read a passage from this book and she's very well celebrated and everything, he thinks maybe as a joke, I'll just write a book that is completely n just nonsensical and, pr and, and try to make it and pass it off as real, like based on real life, black experience, even though it's not. And he just writes this thing that starts off with my pathology, but then he s quickly changes it to my pathology on the uh, on the on the top of the book and he starts writing all this stuff that's not true but it's really based it on stuff that he's watching on tv like the wire and stuff like that so he's like writing this book based on that he thinks there's no way this is kind of a joke he writes this book and he turns it into his uh his uh, publisher john ortiz who's like there's no way i'm gonna try to sell this book he's like he's like look just just give it to a couple of guys. I know it probably won't sell, but I, you know, I think this is funny basically. And Ortiz of course immediately sells the book for $4 million or something mm -hmm. like there's some insane amount of money. And, um, now that it's selling Jeffrey Wright has to become a different person and like, mm -hmm. like hide his identity and like, and, and, and try to speak like somebody who's just come out of jail and all this other stuff to promote the book. 
but this book, this movie isn't really completely about that journey, which is kind of interesting to me. Um, it's, it's, it's more about like, he's got this life, uh, aside from his writing that he's trying to, trying to get together. He's got a sister played by Tracy Ellis, Tracy Ellis Ross. He's got a brother, uh, played by Sterling K Brown. Who's, uh, both of these people are amazing in this movie. Uh, uh, love Sterling K Brown a lot. Um, and he meets, uh, he meets a new, uh, woman to, he starts dating played by Erica Alexander. And, uh, so it's, it's really sort of like, uh, shows what his life is like while this is happening. And then there's the, add a further complication into it. He has been, uh, tapped to be a judge of a fiction contest, uh, of some sort, uh, uh to, to, uh, get an award, uh, to award the year's best fiction. And they're reading all the, it's, and he includes him and Issa Rae along with three other people. And, uh, they're reading all these books and trying to come up with a winner, but at the last minute, wouldn't, you know, his book that he can't tell anybody that he wrote is introduced into the, uh, finalists for it. And, uh, I think it's funny too. It's, it's a min at one point it's called my pathology. And then like, because he hates this book that he's written so much, there's a point where he's dis discussing like all this stuff to market it and everything. And he's like, he's like, you know what? I want to change the title. And he's like, what do you want to change the title to? And he's like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> the title is fuck. Which, by the way, was the working title of this movie until very late. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, I'm not going to even do this deal if you, don't if you don't change the title. And, of course, they're very willing to. I mean, after a little bit of discussion, they're willing to change it to fuck. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, this is a, a very original movie. I highly, highly uh, recommend it. Uh, Jeffrey Wright is always amazing he's so good in everything i don't think yep. i've ever seen one bad jeffrey Wright before no so. i will uh, attempt not to pull another dicer and hijack this uh this recommend as well uh but i will actually be talking about this movie a little bit as we talk about guess who's coming to dinner too because i think there's some real interesting similarities in how these two movies deal with race and i think it's really interesting to watch a movie like this that you don't expect you just expect it to be maybe you know quality and comedy uh, but it turns out that it's kind of a meta movie. There's a lot mm. of meta-ness to this movie that you're not expecting that I really, really thought was smart. Um, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a really good watch for sure. Well, and as uh, Castro says, he says it was 750K for the book and then 4 million for the movie rights later on. So yeah, he was, he was profiting on something that he really, really hated. There's a lot of really awesome discussions too about what makes a good book and what, is the balance between uh, art and uh, commerce and things mm. of that nature. So I, I really highly recommend it's it. It's also very similar to The Lost City, at least in the opening, because Sandra Bullock writes these archaeology books that nobody buys, and on a lark, she <laughs> writes a romance novel, and she becomes a super millionaire from romance novels. <laughs> um, okay, on to the big recommend, which is uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner from 1967. I'm fine, I'm fine. It's just that you're so... Big. It's so huge. It's a good rule, but this is bigger than rules. It's bigger on the inside. Is it? I noticed. Aaron, you are our big recommend. Yeah. So, uh, take it away. 
I'm really excited to talk about this movie. Uh, we start with a shot of an airplane coming in for a landing in San Francisco over the sounds of the song Glory of Love. Glory mm -hmm. of Love will be our constant companion through this movie. Uh, it is all throughout the score uh, and as well, uh, even the soundtrack in another place. Uh, they depart the plane in San Francisco. It's John, who's played by Sidney Poitier, and Joanna, played by Catherine Houghton, uh, an interracial couple. Uh, we join them as they walk into their mom's art gallery looking for her. She's not there. They play with a kinetic sculpture, and they're met by Hillary, uh, who has a clear discomfort with something. Hmm, what mm -hmm. could it be? Don't what could Hillary be. be discomforted by? Mm -hmm. uh, they head to Joey's house where John meets Tilly, uh, the house caretaker, who also has a clear discomfort with something. Uh, we will continue to flesh out these discomforts throughout the movie. Um, we then, let's see, uh, we cut to Joanna and Tilly, uh, in a heated conversation about how Tilly doesn't think John should be getting above his place. So we already have the racial conversation starting different perspectives from different people. Uh, we then have her mom, Christina coming home. Christina is played by Catherine Hepburn. And then we cut between Joey talking to her mom and John talking to his dad. Each of them are trying to figure out how to tell them uh, that they are in an interracial relationship. It's at this point we find out that he's 37 and she's 23, which mm. despite not passing the half plus seven rule is not the thing people uh, seem to be focusing <laughs> yeah, on nobody, uh, in this movie. Half plus seven rule? Yes. I've never heard. I've never heard of this. Oh yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> that is it. Oh, that's the rule. That's half the new plus hotness, seven. Is it? <laughs> yes. They have to be half your age plus seven for you to date them, oh, unless, that's you, right. unless you're DiCaprio. Okay. Yes. Uh, specifically, uh, Christina is in the midst of hearing about this amazing man from her daughter as he walks out, and she freezes up so much that uh, Doctor Prentice gives her a fainting diagnosis. Uh, the dad arrives home. That is Matt, played by Spencer Tracy in his final role. In fact, he passed away just over two weeks uh, after this movie um, stopped filming, I think. Um, so it was very much his last movie. Uh, he's told there's a doctor in the house, so he has a nice conversation and just doesn't quite put two and two together until he's almost walking out and then realizes something else is going on. Uh, so instead of playing golf, uh, he stays once John says that they want to get married, they begin having this conversation. Uh, John lays out that they want to marry quickly and want full approval immediately. We want it today. Uh, Matt calls off his golf game and uh, then immediately calls in a background check uh, on John. Uh, John finds a private audience with Matt and Christine and tells them something he's not telling Joanna, that the decision is actually theirs. They are going to be the ones who decide whether this marriage has happened because, in his opinion, uh, it cannot work if they are against it. It would break Joanna's heart too much. Uh, after he leaves, the background check comes in, and John is everything he said he was and more. Uh, they then look across to see them very happy together, having a good time and laughing, and the parents continue to ponder. Meanwhile, we cut to an impromptu dance party between two characters. We have no idea who they are and never see them again. Uh, we soon find out, <laughs> we soon find out, uh, that, uh, they have not even slept together yet. Uh, and this is at John's insistence, uh, Which this is, I thought was bullshit, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, it is, uh, it is funny in the fact that, uh, there is the, you're burning my shirt mother line at the end, which I thought was, yes. uh, was really, yes. really funny. 
Um, we then see John and Matt discussing music, sports, and children of interracial couples. They are getting into some serious conversation. We then find out that John's parents are want to come into town, and Joey then, Joanna, invites them to dinner because she just thinks everyone is dramatizing this whole situation. This is really easy to Joanna. She, she sees that there's no big deal here. Um, so let's see. Joanna tells Tilly that they need more steaks uh, and then consequently invents Uber Eats to get them there uh, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm, 1967. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's always fun. Yeah. Just, uh, just call a taxi to get it here. That's right. It's Uber Eats. That's what I was saying. Uh, Catherine Hepburn uh, then rolls the credits right towards Spencer Tracy, and he is not pleased at all the pressure now that he's being put under to made, make this decision, as everybody uh, seems to be the answer to who's coming to dinner. Everybody's mm-hmm. going to be there. Uh, including the Monsignor, who we are now meeting. Uh, this is a good friend of theirs. They reiterate a few times that they are not Catholic, but that they are just really good friends with the Monsignor. Uh, he drops by and has some few platitudes and good words to say about interracial couples. Um, Hillary then drops by to commiserate with Catherine Hepburn, uh, and Hepburn immediately fires her with an emphasis on the straight fire Best scene in the movie. <laughs> I, uh, I watched, um, I watched this movie for the first time last year and, uh, it was right after, uh, Sidney Poitier's death. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I rewound that scene, uh, to watch it again. And then on this viewing did the same exact thing, mm-hmm. rewound the scene. So, yeah. Uh, Matt and Christine then go out to get some fresh Oregon boysenberry sherbet. Uh, we then cut to Tilly confronting John now uh, about uh, finding out what black power really means. She's going to let him have it, uh, you know, if he's not in the right place. Uh, then John uh, backs into a black man who gets a standing ovation from the parking lot for chewing out Spencer Tracy. <laughs> Then we cut to an Asian restaurant where Joey and John are getting dinner with a friend couple whilst a uh, standing pianist, uh, again, plays the glory of love. Uh, (laughs) Back home now, a flustered Matt tells Christina that he's made up his mind and he will be saying no. Matt has made a decision. So she goes and cries at the Golden Gate Bridge. (laughs) They meet John's family at the airport, and then they're also shocked to see the white girl. Meanwhile, Spencer Tracy is having a drink, uh, a drink shaving session for some reason, and uh, Catherine Hepburn lets him know how wrong she thinks he actually is. More conversations continue to happen. More depth is sought about the the racial issues that are involved with different people sharing their opinions. Uh, The Monsignor and Christina, Tilly and Christina have a conversation. Matt and the Monsignor have a conversation. Then the dinner guests all arrive and the moms excuse themselves to find that they are in the same position of wanting what's best for the kids. And the dads excuse themselves to find they are in the same position of thinking it's a terrible idea. John then has the conversations with each parent uh, to hear their thoughts. Uh, B. Richards, an amazing actor uh, in this movie. I found it interesting that neither of the black parents uh, had names uh, that I saw in the the cast list. Uh, But uh, B. Richards is so good in this. And then tells Spencer Tracy uh, if he could just remember back to when he was horny. You know, if you could just think back about, you know, when you actually enjoyed sex. That's really Uh, what she says. That's really what she says. You don't remember what it's like to want a woman, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John then tells his dad to uh, get him and his uh, whole generation off of his back uh, in a very powerful scene. 
Spencer Tracy then goes off to ponder at the Golden Gate Bridge before coming back in to they deliver. Most of there. <laughs> yeah, it's right out there. It's right out their backyard. Uh, mm-hmm. Before coming back in to deliver one of the most incredible moment, moments of acting in the history of turning 24 still pictures in every second into the illusion of motion. Uh, all right, guys, what did you think of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Go ahead, Chris. Um, I love this movie. I, I now having seen it twice, the the um i loved it then too but loved it the first time too but um there is one thing about this movie that i think uh it 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 reminds me of the uh the conditions in which jackie robinson was allowed to play major league baseball when they mm-hmm. put Poitier in here and and the reason why i think them not having sex is bullshit uh is because it sounds like they're trying to make everything about him good and like everything is positive there is absolutely no negative to this except for the fact that it's so fast but like they make him the most decorated doctor Mm -hmm. ever yeah in this thing they you know oh i oh i well it's not about sex because they haven't had sex yet and he still wants to marry her um there's even a point too where they're like where i think they're consciously making this movie knowing it's going to hit some very racist places mm-hmm. and they and they're and they and they don't want to make anything like oh well the only reason they're out they're going out together is because of this reason or that reason or whatever i think that sh- when they introduce that one younger black woman into the movie and show sydney poitier going "Ooh, look at her she wonder where she'll be later it's not just something where it's like, oh, he only likes white women or something like that, mm. which is, I feel like that's the reason why they put, they parade that character in there. There's really no other reason. That character is really out of place. Yeah. 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 I don't, it's know, I don't know if there's any, any, any real reason for that other than, other than that. That said, all of this, uh, all of the, everything around this movie is amazing. I would have liked to have seen it though, if it were somebody who weren't so perfect um being the you know being the uh the husband in this thing so uh i I would have liked to have seen that but you know you're talking about 1967 a lot of things happened in 1967 which i'll let you get to dicer if that if you were going to get to those notes but a lot of things whoever wants to talk about it but yeah that was a really big year virginia thing happens like right after this movie is released Mm -hmm. Uh, not because of this movie being released, but it it happens just a couple of days or something. It's like not long after. Well, there's um, a, there's a couple interesting things that are negated from this movie. Like almost immediately, uh, there's a line about you know what you're doing would be illegal in you know 14 states or whatever it was. Well, that line mm-hmm. was wrong by the time the movie came out because yeah. of of that court case. And then also they talk about inviting uh, Martin Luther King Jr to to the dinner uh and he died uh was assassinated before the movie came out or or maybe yeah. while no while it was no. still in theaters was i think while, actually yeah, it was while yeah. the theater and they cut that scene out uh yeah. after that so yeah mm-hmm. it was really interesting Can you imagine chris being a projectionist and get the call from the studio saying okay we need you to go to reel four <laughs> look for this well, gotta cut this I'm, scene. uh yeah i i mean I, that's a that's a very difficult cut to make but i imagine they had it where it was like you know go to this exact spot here and count a certain amount of a frames and yeah. so on and so forth they did that before with something i can't remember when i was working i mean the, the easiest ones were like when you had to 
pull off reel six and put on a new reel six, the end of the, the last reel because they did something with the credits or something yeah. like that. But mm-hmm. there were times you had to go and cut, like they did that with the program. Remember that where the, the people were, uh, they, there was that railroad scene and people actually emulated it. So they yeah. had to cut that railroad scene out the and everything. Program, man. Yeah. Not all about that movie. But anyway. <laughs> Craig Sheffer's in that movie, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's in everything in the early 90s. He was. I. This was my first time watching this movie. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts. Almost, almost all of them are great. Um, but this movie has lived in my head, have not seen it, uh, as a comedy. Mm. I feel like history and society has told me this is a comedy. Um, maybe that's because in the reversed remake, it has Ashton Kutcher in it and doesn't make a lot of serious films. I don't know. Even if you just Google, Google says that this movie is a comedy thriller, which when I saw that, I was like, Ooh, somebody's going to get knife, but no, um, <laughs> this is a straight up. I think this is a straight it's up drama. Thriller, That's for sure. I <laughs> that's don't a, that's that's a, all about. Yeah. I think this is a straight up drama that has a couple of really funny moments. Um, but uh, I went in expecting a comedy. And so when I started seeing, all this powerful acting, uh, I was surprised. I I said that Hepburn firing Hillary is the best scene in the movie. I think that's true. Second best scene in the movie is the final speech by Spencer Tracy, mm-hmm. uh, which I wrote should be required viewing for acting students. Um, but a close second and a half best scene is that speech he gives his father. Like he screams, I owe you nothing. If you'd carried that yeah, bag a million so miles, good. it would have been because that's what you were supposed to do. Um mm-hmm. I was really moved by all the acting and I was really surprised by how nuanced all of the writing was, uh, being that it was in the sixties. Um, you know, and I'll never be able to watch this movie, uh, in the context of living in the sixties where interracial marriage was recently illegal, but it still feels like it would play largely this way today in a lot of cases and a lot of households, um, which just shows how, you know, little we've come despite how far we've come. Um, yeah. It's also weird by the way that Poitier was not nominated for anything that came out in 1967, not this movie, not the, in the heat of the night. And there's to sir with love too, which is a a lesser movie to those two. But, um, but (laughs) he, he had been nominated before and he'd won for lilies of the field it's crazy he didn't get nominated for one of these movies. I don't know what was going on with that. That made no sense. But anyway, that scene that you're talking about with Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn knew how sick he was at the end. Yep. And that's the reason why, she, I mean, it's not just the performance that he's doing. It's she knows he doesn't have much time. In fact, the, the production nearly didn't happen because they didn't think Spencer Tracy had much time. And he died 17 days after that thing that he, that last, that last speech that he did. So, um, just, uh, just imagine what that was like watching him do that in front of, it took a week. It took a week to do that whole scene. To do that one scene. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, but I mean, it's amazing. He's so, I believe she's, crying in that scene for about seven different reasons but it could yeah. be purely because he's just acting so amazing in that scene yeah um i thought it was a really great way to end the movie I mean, he's basically mm-hmm. just telling everybody to shut up and listen to me and you think at least he wants you to think he's gonna say the no 
but then he says yeah. the yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I got to talk about the closed captions on this movie. I'm sorry. I don't oh, want to yeah. dominate no, the conversation here, but I don't know who wrote these or when they were written. I watched this on Amazon. I think about 35, 40% of the words said were missing completely. Mm-hmm. The one that I wrote down was early on when Spencer Tracy says, if you don't explain to me in the next two minutes what you three are playing at, and he gets cut off. That and the captions became, what are you three playing at? Question mark. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm, I'm really offended by that. Mm-hmm. And even if I were fully deaf and couldn't hear those other words, I would see those lips moving and I would know I'm not being told everything that's being said. And it's mm-hmm. just condescending as all hell. Uh, I, get I had to get sense. up. My I get the sense. I, I saw the same thing, by the way. I watched it on Amazon and uh, and was treated to that awful, awful uh, subtitle mess that was going on. I think there was a point in time. This is obviously an old, like never has been redone uh, type of thing. Like I think they go back and redo a lot of movies. This movie's hard to find on Blu-ray, by the way. Oh wow. Um, uh, I, I think they done, they did something a long time ago where it was like, just give them the gist of what is being said mm-hmm. in this scene. You don't need to say every word. It, they just need to know what's going on and be sure to put the best bits in there. And I think that's what happened with these. And that's no excuse. I mean, they need to go back and fix these things that, uh, you know, clearly uh below average and everything but i think that's what we deal with with a lot of these older movies a lot of times unfortunately yeah no i just i feel like amazon is the kind of company that could probably find a few pennies under their sofa to pay for somebody to sit and watch a movie and type out Mm. the proper captions like they don't they don't do it because they don't give a shit and anyway Mm. maybe i'll make enough noise one day um two other nitpicky not nitpicky observational things i saw about this movie um when he, there's a point near the end where he pulls at a single tie from his tie rack yeah. and then all of the other ties slowly fall one by one after that. And I got to wonder if that was a happy accident or if they somehow like set up the tie rack to do. Cause I'm, when we did mad, 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 mad world, there's a scene where the guy kicks over a candle and it starts a fire. And I read that they had to do that scene 75 times to get that right. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if they had to do the tie scene a whole bunch of, I couldn't find any information about it, but it stood out to me as such a great little visual of the chaos of the moment. feels like it has to have been on purpose. Yeah. Considering that it's two guys like confronting each other about their beliefs and in, uh, in that scene. Yeah. It, it, it feels like let's not break from this. Let's not, you know, I mean, I guess some directors would be worried that this would be too distracting during the conversation that they're having and everything, but they let it go and it becomes, I think it's a happy accident. Okay. I don't think well, there's I, any, I would love to believe chance. that. <clears throat> yeah. I don't think there's any chance that was the way that was meant to go. So that's awesome. But other, the other observational thing I wrote down um, was when they go to the drive-in for the ice cream, which is just a weird scene anyway, It but is. they pull in, and that entire second row of cars has blocked in the entire first row of cars. Mm-hmm. There's like seven cars right up at the front of the restaurant, and none of those bastards can go anywhere because right. they're all double parked in. And I thought that is purely like for movie. Per- like, did they really have drive-ins like that in the 60s? Because I would never go to a drive-in like that. <laughs> no, me either. No idea. I, that scene is weird and a little out of place, but I think the reason why they put it in there is because – Tracy seems like he's close to being like, I'm okay with this. 
until that happens. And it just yeah. so happens to be a black driver in the car who yells at him. And that sort of turns him back into this, uh, I don't want this to happen. You know, he even says of- something fairly racist. Like it's only been so many hours and I've already encountered yes. three or four of them or something like that. It's right. like pretty yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I also yeah. think it's fascinating that the, the movie, and I think this would play today as well, does not make them a staunchly conservative kind of bigoted set of parents. It's actually the opposite. They Hepburn wins him over early on by saying, this is, we taught our daughter that discrimination is bad, that all races are equal. Like we can't have a problem with this um, because I think that makes his conflict a lot more interesting and nuanced. Um, but also kind of speaks to the fakeness of a lot of liberal talking points. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Our only talking points, because when they come home to roost, we don't actually follow through on what yeah. we um, I, I, I want to dig just a little bit deeper into s- some of the racial stuff in this, because there are certainly, you mentioned the black exceptionalism, uh, Chris, of the character, and that certainly was even an issue when this came out. There were mm. uh, many in the black community if my reading is correct, um, who didn't like the way that this movie portrayed race uh, because it kind of gives the idea that the reason it's okay is because he's a good one, you know, yeah, like that that's, that's exactly. the idea. Um, and it's, it's this interesting tug and pull in racial relationships uh, in, in, in media specifically, you'll watch it in media between the these these two ideas of colorblindness, uh, this idea that we're all the same, the color of our skin doesn't matter, it's not something that's important, it shouldn't even be noticed, shouldn't even be something we see, right? Like, I don't even see color, like, you know, the colorblindness thing. And then the cultural appreciation thing and a real understanding of, no, it actually does matter because it changes the way you're able to live your life. Like, it changes actual things in your day-to-day life uh, as a person of color in this country. Um, and so that has you, you, there's an understanding of, you know, you, if you're, if you're espousing colorblindness, then you are pretending that the issue is solved, right? Like that there's this, this thing. So this movie, like, I think John even has uh, a line to this. He says something like, um, you think of yourself as a colored man. I think of myself as a man. That's a, that's a beautiful line. That's a beautiful perspective but it plays into that colorblindness idea, like this idea, it's no big deal. It's not some, this is kind of the Joanna perspective, right? This why, right. this isn't a big deal. This is just two people you know, getting married and there's some real beauty there. But if it's not balanced with this other idea, then we're completely out of balance. It's one of the reasons I think American fiction is a really good tie-in with this movie because American fiction, you would think from the presentation of it, the marketing of it, that it's it's about this idea of, black culture as a thing about gangs or drugs or slavery, right? Like those are the three things, but it's actually a movie about just characters who happen to be black living their lives, you know, like that's what it's, it's bringing to you. And so it also plays with this nuance of color blindness versus cultural appreciation and awareness. Um, and I just, I think that there's a, uh, there's a real tendency for, for many of us to want to fall into one of those or the other, instead of understanding the nuance of the balance in both things being true and the importance mm. of, of both of those well, things. Aaron, so. you're the recommender. You're not allowed to make a super secret double feature pick. <laughs> <laughs> like you just keep stepping on everyone's role this, this I'm sorry. episode. I'm sorry. 
I also my my one other big thing, uh, and this is from this viewing of this movie that I that I think I realized. Yeah, I don't I don't think this movie is about racism. I know that's a really interesting thing to say. I think this movie is about love is love. I think if you look at that last speech, it is about, it is all about the idea that love is love no matter who it's between. You could substitute this movie to be about a homosexual couple. You could substitute this movie to be about anything. The answer is love is love. And what are we doing? Like that's could be, that could be about Brad who plays his guitar in the garage <laughs> all day. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, so I think race is kind of the canvas upon which we are telling a, a story about love and about you know whose right is it to say you know what two human being you know uh, beings uh, can't love each other so that's uh you know something else that kind of popped out to me on this one so yeah, yeah. all right uh well it is time for the super secret double feature on this one be very very quiet secret what secret our dirty little secret i tell you something i've never told anyone all right uh this is something i think we should address. I think we should probably all bring two moving forward in case one of us takes the other ones. So I brought, I wrote down three because I, I wasn't sure if Chris's would be the same as mine. And I may step on Chris's right now, doubly so, uh, because I, I sat on the birdcage for a really long time um, mm. for the very reasons you were just talking about, Aaron, where, you know, it's, it's about love is love and, and the parents you know, on both sides sort of having to uh, make their peace with a relationship they don't necessarily at the outset uh, approve of. But I felt like, oddly, given what I just said and your big speech there about love is love, I, I ultimately felt like I had to connect it to race somehow. Sure. Um, and so I, w I went with, this has already been mentioned in the comments, uh, I went with Get Out. Um, not because it is playing with all of the same uh, plot details. We do have an interracial couple and you know, an odd set of parents uh, who are liberal that are super comfortable with it. Um, but I just think thematically, um, a lot of what's going on in that movie would pair well with this movie. And then we would get the thriller that Google says, guess who's coming to dinner is with the comic thriller. Um, so we could have that get out after that. Tonally, I don't think it would be a great match, but thematically, uh, conversation startingly, I think it would be a really good double feature. Mine was also get out. Let's go to questions. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I believe I small recommended uh, guess who's coming to dinner. Um, not too long after I watched it um, over a year ago, I guess it was about a year ago. Um, and I, and I meant, I think I mentioned get out. It feels like a conversation that is had in the car early on mimics this one. That's at the beginning in the car of this mm -hmm. one, mm -hmm. because she is so certain that her parents are so liberal that they'll understand this relationship immediately that, uh, that there's not going to be a problem whatsoever. Like, why do we even need to give a preamble here? Let's, let's just introduce you and say, I'm getting married to this man after 10 days knowing him and everything and just move on out. Everything will be fine. Um, and he gives a knowing look much like Daniel Kaluuya does and get out basically saying, you know, I've lived in this world <laughs> and I know that what you say isn't always what is really buried uh, deep down in uh, in uh, 
when, uh, you know, a lot of people outwardly say a lot of things that they don't really truly believe. So, um, so yeah, mine was also get out. Uh, I, I, I had heard that, uh, you know, I was, and, and I thought American fiction was a really good one uh, as well. And, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, whatever we overlapped on one, not a big deal, not a big deal, uh, but, um, all right. So what is, uh, next week's movie jeremy i actually almost emailed you guys when i was making the prep email because i now that we're three now that we are three i, I wasn't really positive it was my turn i couldn't remember and i even like hmm. had to pull up old emails uh let's go with 2004's michael mann thriller thriller collateral let's kill some people <laughs> it actually is a thriller <laughs> um jamie fox and tom cruise for the most part you do have mark ruffalo jada pinkett smith jason statham peter berg uh, this is on Pluto TV for free with ads. It is on Paramount Plus with a, a, a prescription subscription. Um, I have not seen this movie in probably eight or nine years. I know it to be one of my favorite Michael Mann movies. Um, and Tom Cruise does not very often play the villain. And yeah, this may be the only time he's played the villain. It's very interesting to watch. Um, and the basic premise is Jamie Foxx is a cab driver picks up tom cruise tom cruise says hey i got five appointments you're gonna be my driver all night turns out to be a hitman going around hitting people uh mm -hmm. and then uh, where it goes from there is uh something you will enjoy uh next week um yeah so yeah uh collateral uh is gonna be our pick uh homework and uh i think holy shit we have time for a question or two Question. Question. I got something to say. I want the truth. I am listening. Here we go. Uh, questions from the fans. If you had to try and predict which horror movies from the last few years people will still be talking about in 50 years' time, what springs to mind? Um, I, I think this X-Pearl Maxine trilogy is going to stay for people for a while. Um, just the way it's... I'm, I'm hoping maxine in you know like uh knocks it out of the park so that this can be a you know a really like you know the, the all three are good you know let's not yeah. have a return of the jedi in this one <laughs> um i i uh i i think that i think it's i, I it's going to be something that's studied because these three move i have a feeling that the third movie is going to be different from the other two movies the two movies that are out right now are are, are, are that have come out are completely different movies but they're part of the i i can't wait to see what that's like once it finishes and everything so i think those will be talked about uh the ari aster movies like hereditary and midsummer seem to have some uh long-lasting appeal too uh even though they're they're very strange movies and they're very like hard to you know i don't know sometimes for a common audience member just looking for some jump scares it's not the type of movie for them but i think uh in many years from now we're gonna have some we're gonna have audience you know we're gonna have people who are who find these movies and go wow this is really amazing stuff this they were doing stuff with horror here that is just mm. cutting edge so mm. yeah i think those movies will, will stand the test of time Aaron. I, I found this this question extremely difficult mainly because i'm not a horror aficionado so it's hard for me to understand the 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 context so my my brain basically went back and was like okay so if someone asked this question in what like 1973 they you know what what is still being talked about today that was already out in 73 um and it just seemed like the really successful franchises continue to you know linger in people's consciousness 
uh, in big, meaningful movies. Those are the two kind of things. So I'm thinking, you know, okay, so 2073. Um, so I went with The Conjuring. I just think The Conjuring mm. is such a well-made film mm -hmm. and, you know, has a big universe attached to it now and everything. I can see 50 years from now, people still talking about The Conjuring and in uh, those movies. Um, same for Quiet Place was another one I, I thought that about. So mm. I so, think, yeah. I mean, I don't know if James Wan gets as much credit as he should. He's, he's kind of, he's made a lot of these big movies that, you know, you don't really see like mm -hmm. a style really, but the horror movies that he's done has his style. And, um, I, just, I, I think he's really good. It, he, he may need to go back to some more personal movies to like really fill out that filmography at some point, mm -hmm. but Maybe man, he, yeah, I think the conjuring is a good choice actually. Yeah. Maybe these Aquaman experiences will be like his Iron Man too. I hope so. <laughs> And like Favreau, he'll go make his chef and refine his. Uh... Okay, so one I have is a prediction. Uh, mm. uh, just be just because I think this is fun. Because there's really no way to know, right? There's no way to know what's going to be, you know, Evil Dead in forty years. Um, but I think of the movies uh, he's made so far. I think that Nope will be more remembered than Us or Get Out. Honestly, mm. it's just a actually i like us and get out better than i like nope but i think nope has a lot more really interesting things to say yeah um, if you put those movies under a microscope i think like literally i think looking at nope under a microscope would be insanity going crazy um but then i just wanted to shout out one cut of the dead and uh, one of my favorite oh, movies yeah. <laughs> uh, i feel like yeah. a few generations of film students sees that movie and it will definitely become a cult classic i do hope that that movie gets seen by more people over, yeah i over like that idea years. um uh and and you know at some point you have you have you done have you done that since i was gone did you do one cut of the dead no no okay no, that, well maybe that should be one of your your uh is is it hard to find it um, uh i don't know about that i did buy the blu-ray when i watched it but um mm -hmm. it was on shutter at one point yeah need to do that one at some point probably but yeah anyway. it's on the roku channel right now yeah okay got a time for another question we do let's do one more and then we'll go to lunch will we go to lunch what is your favorite line reading by an actor that takes an otherwise boring line and makes it magical via their delivery <laughs> i've said this one i think a few times i know i've said it to people before outside of the podcast but in the movie role models there's a part where sean william scott uh has sex with one of the uh camp counselors or whatever they're at they've taken all these you know these kids that they shepherd or whatever out into the out into do camping or whatever and he he finds this one camp counselor that he likes and they have sex or whatever and then he's he's like on a whole bunch of stuff and he like passes out and outside and he's completely naked and everybody wakes up and they see him on the ground just lying naked on the on the uh on the on the ground and david wayne the guy who directed the movie is has a small role in there he's like he says uh that's a classic case of guy on the ground <laughs> <laughs> and i just love it so much it's so <laughs> silly um and then um <laughs> there is a uh there's a there's a line in uh in session nine 
where David Caruso uh, says, hey, fuck you, or whatever. The <laughs> camera zooms in on him and everything. It's just it's just batshit insane for what it's like it comes out of nowhere so i love that that uh, uh that uh, line reading as well uh i just went with everything jeff bridges says in the big lebowski um, oh, yeah. i think his line readings in that movie are so good throughout uh for specificness i did pull out uh that's just like your opinion man yeah uh, the fantastic. way he says it it's just like your opinion man like it's <laughs> so good mm -hmm. um yeah i really love him in that movie and i think i think he makes uh that that dialogue just sing so well, yeah. speaking of jeff bridges castro in the chat says tony stark was able to build this in a cave with a bunch <laughs> yeah. of scraps yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. there's also delivery. jeff bridges um i'm going with billy crudup in almost famous when he's at that house party on drugs and the kid says do you want to watch me feed a mouse to my snake and billy crudup goes yes <laughs> and it's the most I don't know how he conveys seven emotions with a single word, but he's <laughs> excited, it's, surprised, shocked. He's happy. great at line delivery, man. He's the best thing about the morning show. Like his line deliveries on that show are so Even good. Even in Star Trek 2009, when he's the bad guy, he says that line, hello, Christopher. And it's just fucking menacing, even though he's just saying hello to Christopher. <clears throat> what, 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 uh, Oh man, the what makes that uh, line Wait, that and almost was... go ahead. What makes that line and almost famous so good is that he goes through that wild druggy rant that he he's like, you know, this is real, you're real, you know, and uh, he's like, and, and like all this uh, all this stuff, you know, blah blah blah, it's real, none of that other stuff and everything. And he goes, he goes, in eleven years it'll be nineteen eighty five. Think about that. And, about and, that. and, and, and then. <laughs> And then the guy goes, do you want to see me feed a mouse to my snake right after? Oh, by the way, like, yeah. I just confused Billy Crudup and Eric Bana. Eric Bana's the one in Star Trek 2009. But that I is was wondering about that. I hadn't seen Star Trek in a while, so I was like, I have uh... confused those two actors since the day they first came on the scene. Um, <laughs> constantly, for no good reason. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Chris, why don't you wrap us up? <clears throat> All right, uh, that will do it for this episode. Thank you, guys. Thank you, chat, for coming out here. You had a lot of uh, very thoughtful things uh, during our discussion today. Uh, don't know, don't uh, believe for one minute that didn't go unnoticed. Thank you so much for coming out and uh, watching us today. Uh, next week will be Collateral. That is a really good movie. I can't wait to rewatch it. Uh, but uh, that's going to do it for uh, uh, this week, guys. So we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye. Bye. Be a part of the live show by being a member of the Sin Club at Patreon at patreon.com slash cinemasins. Chat with us on the Cinemasins Discord at discord.gg slash cinemasins or Cinemasins Twitter at cinemasins and email any comments or questions to recotopia at cinemasins.com. That's R-E-C-O-T-O-P-I-A at cinemasins.com. Rolling, rolling. All right. Hi.
Hi, kids. Campers. I, um... Okay, I have a new conspiracy theory you want to hear. Sure. For most of our marriage, my wife and I have shopped at Publix. The two main, the three main options for groceries here are Kroger, Publix, and Walmart. I'm not going to shop at Walmart. Um, <clears throat> Publix has generally higher prices, but better fresh produce, things like that. More polite people, people who are in focus and not blurry. Um, <clears throat> But my, I, I go to Starbucks inside of a Kroger almost every morning that's near here. And I said something to my wife a few months ago about how much bigger the sushi selection is at Kroger than the one at Publix is. And so we decided to do one of our shops at Kroger so she could get the Kroger sushi, and she loved it. So now we're shopping mm. at Kroger about once a week. And every single time I am hit with an unquenchable thirst before we are done checking out. Like, to the point where last Friday, th Thursday, whenever we went, I went and bought a bottle of water while my wife was checking out and self-scanned myself out so that I could have my thirst refreshed on the way home. That has never happened at Publix in 15 years of shopping, but it has happened like six times in a row I've been at Kroger, and before we check out, mm. I am massively thirsty. So... So you think that they're pumping in chemicals. Or intentionally making make the air dry so that mm -hmm. shoppers will be thirsty and buy something before they check out. That This is not unprecedented because Dasani puts like a certain amount of like salt in their bottled water because mm -hmm. it increases your thirst. <laughs> so while they're quenching your thirst, they're increasing it so you'll drink another Dasani. Um <clears throat> Oh, so I'm just I'm just curious. I, I mean, it could just be that the air is drier in there or something, uh, something to do with the AC system. But it's not a coincidence. That place makes me thirsty, and Publix mm. does not. These pretzels are making These me thirsty. My favorite thing about that episode is everybody's attempt at that line, especially Kramer's, because his is the worst. <laughs> but... Um, <clears throat> Every time George tries to do a line, there's also an episode where he comes into the comes into Jerry's apartment and goes, You can't handle the truth. You can't handle the <laughs> truth. I'm working on my Jack Nicholson, and it's terrible. <laughs> One thing I didn't realize about uh, Seinfeld back in the day, um, at the time I was watching it uh, full on, and I don't know if this, I, I think it's because I didn't, know who Wayne Knight mm. was really like I had seen him in movies before but I but when Seinfeld came around I didn't put the connections together but there are two incredible movie spoofs that they do in Seinfeld that involve movies that he was in um like the oh, JFK yeah. one and the basic yeah. instinct one and uh, had no, and I think he's in the, he's prominently in those scenes he that is. are spoofing the he movies yeah. too. So uh, it's it's the especially the uh, the well, I mean he's I mean he's prominent in both of them, but that that Basic Instinct one where he's like, it's very hot in here, <laughs> isn't it? Very hot, <laughs> you know. And, and like Jerry um, just casually sips a mug but, root beer. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm I'm quite fine.